some of us have been forced to... Oh, is it, can you hear me again? No. Um, <laughs> now? Yes. Uh, some of us have been forced to debase ourselves for money. Um, yeah, here we go. Buy one of these. Um, so four years ago... Um, I can't remember if you were this one, Alex or Roz. We did a Christmas show at the Leicester Square Theatre just after the 2019 election. Mm. Were well, any of you here then? We were both on there. Yeah. Right. It was, it was vibes. <laughs> um, and then we were talking about a Tory landslide, uh, the Johnson hegemony. Um, Except me, thank you. Right. It's true. And, and people were so fucking patronising afterwards, and we were like, oh, it's not that you found a silver lining to keep us cheerful. What was your silver lining? That, you know, people like Johnson basically burn themselves out quite quickly. Yeah, so. but, well, there was much talk about how Labour would take a very long time to come back. Yeah. But now look. Um, none of the party leaders from that election are in, still in frontline politics, by the way. Um, oh, that's interesting. None of them have been in Parliament. Nigel Farage, to be fair, was never in Parliament. So no change there. Um, the Shadow Cabinet had now been told to get their ducks in a row for a spring election. Uh, so a Labour government could be just around the corner. I don't know if there's going to be one. I don't know if they've been tipped off or they just want to be, you know, match ready. So we're going to talk about what we're expecting from the campaign and the first year of Labour rule. And, um, and who will we make fun of? Because it's a very, it's very pressing. I don't really care about the country, but for podcasters, <laughs> it's actually quite difficult. Because, yeah, Johnson, Brafferman, you know, what material? Um, James, in that Telegraph column that caused a fuss, uh, Starmer cited the watershed elections of 1945, 1979, and 1997 when people were desperate for change. Do you think? that there is potential for this to sort of herald a new era? And does it depend on what Labour say? And, you know, if they, if they get their, you know, ramp up the hope and uh, not so much the caution? I, well, I, first of all, I think the Telegraph column was quite clever. Um, in, in retrospect. I think he's doing quite a lot of clever things that people oh, like. Oh, you would say that. You love Keith. I do love Keith. <laughs> and Maggie. I love Keith. But, but he's doing a lot of things that upset people like me at first glance. And then you realise that actually he's, he's probably being a little bit more intelligent than any of us are used to seeing a political leader, <laughs> a political leader be in this country. So, he, he, I mean, you talk about the speed or the length of the Labour comeback. Everyone was expecting two terms. Even if Johnson didn't survive, uh, you, you were certainly not expecting it to fall apart quite as quickly or quite so spectacularly. And the reason why Labour are benefit, because it's very easy to say, oh, he's just benefiting from the Tories falling apart. But there are Labour leaders in living memory who would not have benefited from <laughs> from the Tories falling apart, who, who would have just been lumped into the same skip as, as whoever was actually in government. And the reason, the way in which he's done that is by detaching himself completely from what went before and by appealing ca quite calmly and quite measuredly to people who in 2019 would have cut off their leg before they voted for the Labour Party. And one way of doing that is speaking about Margaret Thatcher without immediately pulling out garlic and a crucifix. <laughs> and, and that's all he did. So I had a caller on my show who, who said I've voted Labour since 1945. Um, it may not have been quite that long ago. But, 
and, and now after those Thatcher comments, I'm never, I'm never going to vote for Labour again. And I, I, there's a lovely, there are lovely moments on the radio where you think I'm going to throw my maggot into the into the river at this point because I think he's going to bite. Um, and I said, "Did you read the actual article?" And and he went. He said, I thought you only pulled apart racists like this on your... No, he didn't. <laughs> I said, did you read the actual article? And he said, um, no, I didn't. So I read it to him. And, and he said, oh, all right, then. <laughs> so that's why I, that's why I think... I, you know, I even think perhaps getting chased down the street by, by pro-Palestinian protesters, whose point I largely agree with, I think that works well for Starmer because the kind of people that the Tories try and portray him as still being in hock to or in bed with are the kind of people that are attacking Starmer on, on television screens and, and in newspaper pages. But, 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 the big question then is how, how, how quick and how swinging will change be when he gets in? And I'm always reminded of that line in Clockwise that the John Cleese character delivers about, about despair, saying, I can cope with the despair, the despair I can deal with. It's the hope. It's the hope, it's the hope that gets you. Um, on the plus side, it cannot possibly be worse. On the minus side, what sort of expectations is he going to arrive in Downing Street with? And, and again, I think he's really managing that. And I think he's... I, I, well, on the occasions when I've interviewed him in person, he's different in broadcast formats. That's a problem he's got. The last three weeks at PMQs, I think he's improved on, on that stiffness that he has in, 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 in public sometimes. But when you interview him in person on a stage, for example, which I've done, there's a, there's a warmth and a humanity and a humour there that doesn't come across. But what also comes across is a very real sense of duty, which is absolutely absent from politics mm -hmm. at the moment. It has been probably for 13 years. It's, it's exactly what Alex was talking about when, when Alex talks about just a sense. When they asked David Cameron why he wanted to be Prime Minister, and he said, oh, I think I'd be rather good at it. <laughs> and, you, and you just go, oh, Christ on a bike, the entitlement that you would have to have lived with all your life. To, to, and I think Sunak's probably the same. Sunak's ticked off all these things in his life. Head boy, you know, captain of the debating society, made a lot of money, married a billionaire's daughter. It's all ticking, ticking, ticking. Prime Minister next. Yes, I'll tick that off as well. Starmer wants to be Prime Minister because he wants to improve the country in which he lives and which he clearly loves. And I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt for at least two and a half hours. <laughs> Alex, I think, didn't you come up with a really good slogan for the Labour election campaign on the podcast? I think so, and then they nicked some of it. I think they did adopt some of it. Did they? Was it Are they listening to our podcast? Are they really listening to our podcast? Yes, I think it was re rebuild, repair, renew. <laughs> That was my thing. Oh, that's good. It's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. Still, still, still holds up magnificently two months later. <laughs> what would you run on if you were, if you were, if you were Starmer, if you were in, if you were a Labour strategist? It's like, what do you think, sensing the mood in the country? I mean, beyond like, get these fuckers out. <laughs> that's the subtext. But what's the text? So, I would be tempted to actually not run on any policy thing, to run on values, to show my workings, basically. Because I think, for two reasons, I think people have been so burnt in the last few years, anything you promise, no one believes it anyway. Yeah. They just think, oh yeah, we'll see. 
Um, and, and it gives a target for, you know, people out there to be going, well, how are you going to fund this, you know? Um, and the second is that it feels to me like um, the pandemic and Ukraine have really shown people that whatever your plan is, it's out the window on day one. You will have to deal with completely different circumstances to what you imagined. And so I think it would be more useful for people to to know how will you make your decisions? Mm. Like, what do you prioritize? What are your, your red lines? Is it, you know, uh, a healthcare free at the point? Um, is it, you know, uh, better education, housing? You know, what are your aspirations rather than I will build 100,000 new homes on year one, which nobody believes. I mean, people have become so jaded by that. When you're in opposition, people are always just like, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? When you're in government, you can spend hundreds of millions of pounds on not sending people to Rwanda. Yeah. And it's just like... Oh, and no one, no one questions where it's coming yeah. from. Cool. Well, because we know where it's coming from, our taxes. Um, but, yeah, so I would be telling... I mean, or I would make my only policy, like a root and branch reform of the political system. I would say, you know, it, it will be... A, a, basically, in a, a commission on the electoral system, um, review, the, do away with hereditary peerages, review the way life peerages are awarded, more devolution, um, you know, uh, deal with lobbying, deal with dark money, deal with uh, think tanks, you know, do all of that stuff because I, because I think you'd, you'd have to do that to get to a stage where you could promise stuff to people and they wouldn't yeah. go, yeah, pull the other one. Um, Rod, some people in this room may have fond feelings uh, towards... <laughs> you and your applause lines. Um, <laughs> some people may have fond feelings towards the continent of Europe and its inhabitants. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you think that Starmer will mention Europe and Brexit in any way in the campaign, uh, or is that still too too scary? No, he won't. Uh, no, he won't. We, I mean, I hate to tell you this, guys, but he doesn't. He doesn't need us, right? He really doesn't need us to win. He's got us on board already. He doesn't. He, he doesn't need our support, and that is why he does not need to mention Europe and Brexit. Plus. You know, at the moment, to be honest, Europe is not in a great place. And I say this, I say this Same with... I say this cautiously because there's a lot of love for Europe in this, in this room and I, and I share it and for the European Union. But, you know, they've just had to hand billions to Viktor Orban to persuade him to let them send aid to Ukraine. And in a way, I bet a part of Starmer is thinking, thank God I'm not having to negotiate in that room and do those things. Um, there is, you know, it's a difficult place for the EU at the moment. And yeah, of course, we all here want to you know, rejoin, I imagine, or at the very least, you know, maybe the single market, the customs union. But but uh, it's what we will have, you know, undoubtedly, once he gets in, is a sophisticated, 
committed, mature relationship with the European <laughs> Union, which is going to be great. And we will, you know, we saw that when he talked to the Greek Prime Minister when Rishi Sunak had his little tantrum and, and said that he wouldn't. Um, and, and that's going to be that's going to be very refreshing. But will he talk about it during the campaign? No, I don't think he will. And I actually agree with Alex that you know he can more or less run a vibes-based campaign. Um, and you shouldn't underestimate a vibes-based campaign. I mean, I was thinking today because I was doing a bit of research on Australia. And 1972, Gough Whitlam, the Australian Labour Party, ran with the slogan, "It's time." <laughs> Okay. Now, when you can win an election on a slogan like that, and he turned out to be a really reforming, radical prime minister, albeit he got kicked out very quickly, but he achieved a lot in the short time he was there. And that slogan is considered one of the best political slogans of all time. It is, yeah. It's time. I always like when people talk about leading people into the future as if there is another option. <laughs> Going, we're going to go backwards. It's going to be pretty freaky. Yeah. That, that, uh, who knows where we're going to end up? That's what Jacob Rees Mogg does. Yeah, you'll run with a slogan. Any farthing, cycling as fast as he can. The slogan, death, take me now. <laughs> Wrong gear, it's reverse. <laughs> um, so, James, let's fast forward. Let's imagine uh, that they've won. Um, and essentially, what the Tories will be saying is, here's Britain, sorry we broke it. Um, where would you where would you start? Like of all the things that seem to not be working. Oh, oh I'd have liked some notice of this question. <laughs> <laughs> you are now in charge of Britain. What do you, you can't just talk on the radio now. You've got to fix things. <laughs> um, I, I think I, it's a dreadful phrase, but you've got to identify achievable goals, haven't you? So you've got you've got to do stuff that mm. people will feel the difference of, feel the impact of. I, I suspect that negotiating with the railway unions, or, or at least um, ensuring that the rail providers negotiate with the railway unions, would sort of de-constipate. De de the transport mm. network at the moment. I'd, I'd prioritise that, I think, because anyone who's tried to travel anywhere by train in the last six months or so has, has had uh, apocalyptic experiences. It, you can't, it's a bit, there's two things that have struck me recently about being a sort of punter. You walk into supermarkets and there is not as much food on the shelves. I don't care what anybody says, I don't care what anybody claims or how it's a remainer myth, it's just true. You speak to someone who's been away for a few years and then comes back, I spoke to a chap in Padua today who came back to see his mum in North Wales last week, he couldn't believe that the empty space, there did not used to be empty spaces on supermarket shelves as a matter of course. You went shopping with your shopping list, it never crossed your mind that you wouldn't find everything on it, except, I don't know, in Alex's case, probably saffron or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, you're <laughs> but you're basic shopping. You'd never think, oh, I'm going to have to pop to Tesco's now because I couldn't find it in Sainsbury's. I don't know what he can do about that in the first instance, but the Windsor Agreement needs tweaking. But he can certainly sort out transport. And the way the question was framed, my lud, only, um, only demanded that I come up with one answer. <laughs> like one obvious area to focus on. Obviously it takes a while to build a house, I'd imagine. I haven't, haven't, haven't built one. Um, but you know, it's not something that's gonna kind of pay off immediately, but is that, that, cause that seems to be actually the one where there is complete cross-party consensus. It's not about how to do it, but the fact that it needs to be mm. done. 
Well, it certainly takes longer than it does to confiscate a tent, put it that way. Um, but, <laughs> it took you a while to get that one. No, I got it. it. I was just loving the room. It was like a slow hiss, it was like a broken gas fire. <laughs> Um, that noise? That's good. I, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, like like Alex, housing is great, and I. But they need to avoid getting bogged down in figures because you know there's been one single figure that um, has been has been the promise of delivering on house building, and it's always three hundred thousand new houses a year. Every single government for the last I think decade or so has promised to build three hundred thousand new houses new houses each year, and they never have. So, like you say, there's no point in that. What I think will actually happen is one of the earliest things, and I think this also feeds into what uh, James was saying about uh, getting the rail unions particularly on side, is a big, uh, the new workers' rights uh, reforms that Angela Rayner mm. is spearheading. Mm. And there will probably be a ban on zero hours contracts, for example, um, and all kinds of things that basically, you know, make the British market infinitely flexible, apparently, but also extremely <laughs> mean it relies heavily on migration and mean that it's, you know, screws over large numbers of workers. And that is very, very important to Labour. It's very important to Labour's funders, the unions, and it's an easy win in terms of Starmer. Conf uh, fending off the criticism that he was bound to get, that he is already getting from the left, saying, you're not left-wing enough, here you are in power, what are you doing for the workers? And it means passing a ton of legislation, uh, which will be relatively easy to do, I think, given that he's likely to have, fingers crossed, a decent decent majority. And it fits very much with both, with both you know, Starmer's Starmer, Starmer is all about respect, and in particular, respect for the working man. That's the whole thing. When he talks about his father being a toolmaker, and how he was disrespected. Yeah, I know he has. Um, how he was, he never got the respect he deserved. Yeah, that's true. It's a, yeah, it's his mum do. She was a nurse. I was just yeah. sort of the donkey. Yeah, <laughs> the donkey side. Yeah, yeah, the donkey side. But it's it's very for a start. He's a lawyer, so he understands the power of the law to change things in this regard. And and yeah, he's he's all about respecting and particularly respecting working people. Mm. And so I think he will run a very vibes-based campaign on respect. And then the first thing <coughs> that we'll see is a big uh, investment. In this now this, there's a there's a bit of a pitfall here. Because what's happened in Britain recently is that there are rules, for example, about illegal working, you know, but they're not enforced. And hardly anyone, like a few, a handful of people each year, get prosecuted for treating their workers badly. It's just not enforced. There's no money in it. There's no decent inspector inspecting going on. And Starmer, better than anybody, I would have thought, as a former director of public prosecutions, because you know, he used to do that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he ought to know that better than anyone, that it's all very well passing laws, but you've got to enforce them. And you can't have a fantastic, you know, fantastic set of workers' rights laws for people who are uh, working, you know, in, in regulated professions. But then there's a whole, you know, under, yeah, I won't say under, class because that's patronizing but there's a there's a whole other world of people who are slaving away in a completely unregulated mm. environment so that's going to be a real risk and he has to tackle that as well so alex these sort of this stuff will be music to rachel Reed's ears because it doesn't really cost much whether it's you know changing planning regulations toughening up workers rights um but at some point there are certain things that need to be done where is she just she's just going to have to get spendy 
Like, is she... Um, is she sort of... Do you think that's one of those ones where... I think we were joking about stage that as soon as they got in the door, they were just going to... Uh, they just going to unveil a bust of Lenin and go, Told you! <laughs> Unlikely. Um, but considering that once you're in office, you're allowed to just spend... Like, people don't suddenly go, how much is that going to cost? They just yeah. go, the government's doing it. I guess they found the money. Um... Like, is that something that, that you're, ex you're expecting, that there is certain oh, completely. They will spend money. spend money. Yeah, on. absolutely. They will spend money. Um, and they will spend money because the so-called fiscal rules are an entirely self-defined, self-imposed thing anyway. You know, everyone is talking about the headroom um, uh, hunt found in the recent budget. And that was like some... Some projection came in slightly lower for borrowing a little less money in five years' time. So he's like, oh, that's good, I can spend that. <laughs> so yeah, she will spend. And she will spend because, in the meantime, the Conservative Party will be a bin fire. So they will have no opposition effectively I'll be for the first my hands around <laughs> They will have a year where they can do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. That, that's basically the bottom line. This is where the problem is going to be like running around screaming with a hair on and, fire. And the, <laughs> and the massive mistake that the Blair government did is that they didn't take advantage of precisely that period. So then they had to be a little bit more careful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that lives in the muscle memory of the Labour Party. And they, they know that if they come in and they come in with a big majority, they, those first hundred days are absolutely key. People have to feel and see the money being spent to fix the country. And if that happens, you establish yourself for two, three terms. Yeah. And if it doesn't happen, it's very difficult to reverse that first impression. But they'll do it. They will do it. I love the idea that, I love the idea that you thought, Keir Starmer's mother was a professional donkey sanctuarist. <laughs> but that was like her main, I just, her I mixed, main deal. <laughs> so that's somebody's main deal. Of um, okay, I forget things. Um, so does Rishi Sunak. <laughs> James, which uh, which shadow ministers impress you? Uh, are you sort of excited about? I don't know that I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, mate. You spent ten minutes on the show reading a Telegraph article. Yes. Um, I, it was only two lines. I didn't read the whole article. All right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought that was a must have been a riveting, <laughs> riveting five minutes Thanks, of mate. radio. One and a half million listeners. I'm doing something right. Um, <laughs> Well, I can't complain. Um, do you really want to know? Because I'm happy to know. <laughs> Just, I think, week six in the top 20 on Amazon this week. But anyway. Um, the, 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 and, and a, lot, a lot more than the plot, which is particularly, particularly satisfying. What I love about James is that the success hasn't changed. Thank you. <laughs> Son of a toolmaker, very humble. Change the subject mercifully. Ministers. Who, who do you like? Ministers. Um, I, 
I, I, I can't say I like all of them. I think Streeting is the most interesting. I, I, I think that he is the one that seems to be oh. pushing. Uh, <laughs> I said interesting. I, I think so many. <laughs> I think I think there are going to be. I mean, to pardon a fairly awful pun, but there, there is going to be some serious medicine that needs to be taken. I think we have quite an emotional attachment to the NHS in its historical and traditional form, and I'm not sure it is sustainable. And if Wes Streeting can provide a transparent and and comprehensible account of why some fairly meaningful and profound changes need to be undertaken and why they will be <coughs> undertaken, then that is infinitely preferable to sort of backdoor privatization and, and, and um, covert mm. selling off. And, and I think from what I have seen of him, he is not frightened of that challenge. Now, health is probably, after the Home Office, it's probably the most poisoned chalice of all, isn't it? And, and, and it's mm. done for um, more politicians at least in the short term than any other department but 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 streeting is he's, he is up for it and, and I'll tell you that despite having some issues with some of the pronouncement that, that he's made seeing a politician that is really up for it and is absolutely across their brief and is I think determined to make meaningful change from day one you, you have to cross your fingers because you can't leave things as they are. That, you know, the, the, the health services we're about to see and the now traditional comes earlier every year, doesn't it? The Christmas crisis in the, in the National Health Service. Something serious has to change and it can't just be leaving everything exactly as it is and shoveling yet more money in, in the direction of the health service. It just can't be that. So I'm, 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 I don't know that I'm excited by him, but I'm most interested in how West Streeting is going to perform. And I think Rachel Reeves has been extraordinary in her transformation. I think watching a politician grow in stature, obviously opposition is very different from government, but to watch a politician grow in stature and in confidence and in delivery, to uh, borrow one of Rishi Sunak's catchphrases, <laughs> but she, 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 she delivers detail now. Uh, and if they're in opposition, they don't have to deliver detail. However many interviewers demand that they provide you know, balance sheets, that they're just, it's a stupid question asked by um, silly people. But she, she bats that away fairly easily as well. They just look competent at the yeah. moment. And um, Christ, I'd take competent any day of the week. Um, Ross, the one that uh, I suppose I had most reservations about is Yvette Cooper. Generally, because I mean, Home Secretary, you know, it, it's not a lovable uh, position. I remember writing a letter, uh, I think in 94, to uh, Tony Blair when he was Shadow Home Secretary. I would love to have read that. Going, what are you going to do about the crackdown on the criminal justice bill? Um, unsatisfactory response. Um, but nice of him, nice of him to respond. Um, and I just feel those sort of vibes from Yvette Cooper, and I'm thinking that some of the worst things that the Tories have done that could be quickly reversed, like you can't really suddenly just go, we're doing HS2 anyway. But what you can do is repeal like protest restrictions, voter ID, like that's like super simple. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly some things that you can just plug onto another bill, and there will be an awful lot of bills being passed in that first year. Mm. And I imagine a voter ID in particular, I think, will we'll go. That's just not, you know, it doesn't even work for the Tories. <laughs> Why on earth Labour would keep it? Well, is, maybe well, you answered your own yeah. question. <laughs> Labour voters get on too. Yeah. Uh, but it's... Uh, the protest laws, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, they, they, they should go. But I don't think they will. I don't think they will because um, I think Starmer himself is not really a libertarian when it comes to protest. He's a cop. Yeah. Yeah, he's basically, yeah. I mean, he's a what? He's a cop at heart. Like a friend said, the thing about Starmer is he's a cop. A yeah. cop. A cop. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very responsible <laughs> Cop, but a uh, very responsible, caring, nice cop. But he is a cop, and you know, you saw with just stop. Still oil. hearing cop. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. Um, no, he, he, yeah, you saw with Just Stop Oil that he's not, uh, you know, he's quite happy with those laws if it, uh, you know, if it, if it uh, punishes people who he doesn't particularly approve of. Also, bear in mind what those protest laws do. They give big powers to the police and to the Home Secretary. Now, if you've got Yvette Cooper as Home Secretary, and for all your reservations about her, rather than Suella Braverman or Priti Patel um, or, or in James Cleverly, then um, you, you're probably you know, a bit less worried about what the Home Secretary is going to do with those powers, should she wish to. Um, and the police, yeah, I mean, clearly it's a worry, but they do fundamentally generally do what the, the government tells them to with some obvious it's exceptions. It's a shame that people never really want to give away powers. Like, even if they yeah. wouldn't have introduced them, once they've got them, they're mm. just like, but I will use them for good. Yeah. And, and so, then they think as if then the other guys are never going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. And of course they will, and then they'll abuse them again. But yeah, I, it's very hard for governments to give up powers once they abrogate them themselves. And that's why I, I don't think it's going to be a priority at all. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry to, to, uh, yeah. to let you down on that one, but no. Alex, I, regular listeners, presumably some, some of them here, um, <laughs> will know, you know, my, my great affection for uh, Ed Miliband, Lisa Nandy, Bridget Phillipson. They're always mm-hmm. the ones that I... Uh, they're the three that you fancy. They're my bankers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've all been on the show. So that's basically, that's, that's good enough for me. Uh, very, I don't know what they believe in or what they do. <laughs> they, they've, been on, they've been on the show. One of them actually came in, in person. Um, no, but who, who sort of, um, uh, it was Bridget Phillipson, it was when she was backbencher, obviously. Not now, she wouldn't touch us with a barge pole now. Um, who, who do you like, who are you sort of excited at seeing get their hands on a sort of government department and actually do the stuff that they've been wanting to do? Um, I, I quite like Yvette Cooper. I don't know, I don't understand why she has a bad rap in this, in this group. Um, I, I think I can understand what you mean about her being quite, you know, having a style that will work very well in opposition but may great when she's got the actual levers of power. I just have my home secretaries, basically. But, yeah, but maybe, she, maybe she's smart enough to adjust to actually being in power and not, not be that person. And, and the, thing, the thing about a lot of those laws, not the voter ID law, which I think they will do away with, but 
a lot of the protest laws, I mean, a lot of that stuff depends on what kind of steer you give to the police force. Mm. You, you know, most of it, like, you know, no one decriminalized cannabis at any point, but th there have been times when the government said, can you not prioritize that? We're mm -hmm. not interested in people smoking one joint, just concentrate on this kind of thing. And so I think the, the, the sort of style of policing depends much more on the steer and culture that comes from the top rather than the legislation that's on the statute. I think it'd be books. funny if when they got in, they just said, we're going to decriminalise yeah. weed, and the bust of Lenin has like a big sort of joint <laughs> <laughs> in its mouth. I, I have surprise, I think. I've got some <laughs> doubts about Liz Kendall, I'll be honest. I think her instincts are quite right wing. And I think in the Department of Work and Pensions, she can do a lot of damage. Okay. And I, I would prefer someone more overtly empathetic in that position. Mm. I think Ed Miliband's going to have a really hard time because, you know, net zero, it, he's going to be the one that's basically in everyone's face all the time. Um, for you know, it, the the People nature the nature of his brief is such that he will be getting involved in other people's departments all the time, and I think that's quite a, a mm. difficult role. I also rate West Streeting mm. very highly, by the way. What a backstory! I mean. Bloody hell, everything but the hounds of hell <laughs> snapping at his behind. Um, but, and, and I do also think that the NHS does need serious reform. Um, and you can't, you can't go into it with the NHS believing that this means we can just do the same thing, but they'll just give us loads more money. Mm because I don't think the country will wear that, actually. But, you know, I, I think if we go back to what I was saying about, you know, show us your workings, your priorities. I think, I think what's gone massively wrong the last really 30 years is that... That's what Rishi yeah, said. Yeah. <laughs> it, I will disagree on the substance, though. You will be. But it is that, you know, this, this money is treated as sort of pocket money. It's like, how much do we have and where do we spend it? Instead of going, starting from the other end and saying, what does the citizen expect the state to deliver? How much will that cost? Where do I get the money? That's surely the right way around, right? And, yeah. you know, and I see a lot of that in, in everything they say at the moment. Ros, let's be honest, we're going to sort of complain about various decisions that they make, um, you know, just probably just to fill the episodes. <laughs> um, but, but after 14 years of, of Tory dysfunction, like it, it's going, it feels to me, I could be wrong, that it's going to feel like a new era regardless of sort of what they do, and even if it is a little bit underwhelming, and even if you think, oh, you could have done more, and you could be more inspiring, Surely that kind of change, you know, has to sort of feel inspiring anyway. Yeah, I mean, the it's time vibe, you know, it's a change. I, no, absolutely. And, you know, he will have a lot of goodwill, I think. And some, to a certain extent, it depends on the size of his majority. Um, not just in, the, in terms of getting uh, winning votes, that's not so much the issue, mm. but in terms of how much of a mandate he feels he has from all different sections of the British population. 
you know, from mm. Scotland, from Wales, from the Red Wall, yeah. uh, which, you know, will hopefully be a war again, uh, from the Blue Wall, which hopefully won't be blue anymore. But, you know, what, what, how much he can actually claim to be speaking for the whole nation when he does things. So that will be partly what he, uh, what I think will be able to power well, That's him. another thing that's turned around, isn't it, since what people were saying in 2019 or, and, and before. It was like, well, you're not going to get Scotland. How are you going to win without yeah. Scotland? Yeah. And now Scotland's looking very, uh, yeah. you know, exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's possible that you could get something where you've got you've got to spread across the region. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, and you can actually be <clears throat> one nation. Yeah. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> James, um, what's the vibe that you're, you get from callers? Um, that, like, are there, is, there, is there sort of, um, is there excitement about the prospects of a Labour government or, you know, trepidation? Because you're speaking to people across the spectrum. I, I don't. I don't think there's much excitement yet. You've got to be careful. Um, I, I don't want to get myself into any trouble, but it, it, you, you do have to bear in mind that ringing a radio phone-in program is not a terribly normal thing to do. <laughs> I, was just, I was just feeling really happy. I was out with my mates. I just thought I'd take some, take a minute to yeah. call in. It's yeah. the only way you'll take my calls now. <laughs> But, but it is, it has, uh, over the years I've, I've been doing it, it has become more and more normal and uh, there's nothing nicer mm -hmm. than hearing someone on air who is palpably surprised to find themselves on the radio. They sort of get put, speak to a producer and they get put through and they, they, you can hear them sort of going, crikey, God, I've never done this before. <laughs> um, and, and they're the ones I'm most interested in because, because they're the ones who have been prompted to ring in by a change in their own political compass or, or a change in their own circumstances. And I think that the mood around Starmer is changing. I, I, I think that he will never win the hearts and minds of the all politicians are liars brigade or all they're all the same brigade i i, I think that is a a narrative that suits the far right actually the, the idea that all politicians are the same therefore there's no point engaging in democratic processes and even when you do engage in a democratic process and he comes third it's a fix and itv have been conspiring against you from the start to, 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 de to deny your man the victory that he so obviously deserved but the, but so the, the idea of, of starmer carrying a ming vase across an ice rink I I think took hold, and and um, the, the the cautiousness. I, I and I, I, look, I'll be honest. Fifty-two percent um, genuine opinion and forty-eight percent optimism, or possibly the other way around. My favourite ratio. <laughs> the, uh, the, the the idea that the caution is now beginning to make sense. Yeah, I think is actually catching on. I I, I think that people don't want uh, another bells and whistles. Mm. Person, I think that, that if he can continue with this portrayal of quiet competence, then it will be it will be big come the next election. People well, whinge about him being, you know, boring, but there'll be so much happening in that yet to talk yeah. about and fight about, obviously, yeah. and argue about. It's not going to be boring. It's it not. really isn't. No, you're right. No. You're absolutely right. It's going to be very exciting, especially for sad policy wonks like me. <laughs> Um, so we want to get some of your questions. So we're going to do our, our newsmakers of the year uh, quickly for me and James. Mine is, it's a bit obvious, but I have actually found it the most discredible spectacle, um, is 
Elon Musk's un great unravelling. <laughs> if you're saying what's interesting about Rishi Sunak is he's just walking through life like dum, 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 everything's going well and then suddenly like falls down a pothole <laughs> lined with shite. Um, then that's that's Elon Musk and he's just like I'm an under I proved myself I am a genius I want to change the world and take us to other planets and all that stuff and he had for years people going oh sounds cool okay. You know, you, you seem to know what you're doing. And he's just been killed by Twitter. And mm. somebody who, where Twitter hasn't always brought out the best in me. Um, I love seeing someone who, if he was never on Twitter, never interested, let alone bought it, people would still just think, maybe we'll go to Mars. And so he's bought this thing, he's destroying it, all the advertisers have run off, he seems to become a kind of omnidirectional bigot, <laughs> to the point where I can't think of any group that he doesn't hate. Whereas before he was just this kind of boring sort of tech centrist, and now he just sort of hates everyone. Um, and it's just watching the implosion of somebody that we were told was very, very important and very, very clever. And although, and facts that I'm still calling it Twitter and nobody cares. <laughs> and that really, and that even when people call it X in print, they have to go, <laughs> formerly Twitter, otherwise known as Twitter. And so you can't, even this rebrand, you just, people are just going, no. And I just, I enjoy failure on that scale, despite, <laughs> The, obviously, the, the flood of, you know, anti-Semites and so on on the site. Um, I, just, I, just lo I just loved it. Yes. In a Sean Floyd way. Has, has he destroying Twitter, or has Twitter destroyed him? Oh. <laughs> That's the third amazing noise. It's like, where did he find this new material? <laughs> a little bit of kind of sub-bass. Like, yeah. um, James, your newsmate. I, I, I just on the rebrand, I love it. It, I, it reminds me of a guy at college who gave himself the nickname Fonzie. <laughs> and, and literally nobody except him ever called him Fonzie. So he'd, he'd arrive in the bar and go, all right, guys, Fonzie's here. And we'd all go, all right, John. <laughs> Can I change mine? Because I, I was going to do Ulez, which I think we touched on in the first. Sure, part, yeah, you can. Uh, so I'll choose Gary Lineker because the man can't break. <laughs> Very topical. It, well, and also he can't break wind without making front page news. This <laughs> <laughs> is absolutely extraordinary, and it's a, it's a lot more significant than I think people realise. We haven't really touched upon it at all tonight, but all of the people we're talking about who have votes. Um, still rely in large part on what the uh, print media or legacy media or established media is, is telling them, whether you're swimming against it or pushing back against it or whether you're being manipulated and influenced or, or informed perhaps occasionally by it. And, and th th there's, there's two stories out there. Th there's this idea that does have enormous hold across Fleet Street from, from you know, the Telegraph right down to the sun, or up to the sun these days, um, <laughs> that, that there is a sort of massive liberal conspiracy, that there are loads of very, very influential people, you could call them the, the new elites or the tofu-eating woke oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, the anti-growth coalition over there in the corner. Same people. It's great to see you here tonight. Um, <laughs> and, and yet... When am I here woke? <laughs> And yet, when you actually say to people, okay, make me a list of the prominent liberal voices in this country who have a significantly sized platform which they are paid to use to promote liberal thought. So you can't include 
people who use Twitter, um, which would be Gary Lineker and Carol Vorderman. That's it. <laughs> uh, the people with a big, big, I mean, big, big platform, mm. as in everything they do is newsworthy because of mm. the things they've been doing mm. for the last 30 or 40 years. On, on the right wing side of it, uh, we could be here all night listing, you know, from, from little John, little... Uh, Little Murray, uh, uh, all of them. Uh, mm. I mean, uh, there's, there's 30 of the time. I work with five. Um, <laughs> actually, two now. It used to be five. Um, and yet, when you ask that, you that, that, I find with the other two, I'd be worried. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, I'm working. Uh, no. Um, it's great when you see a bus and it's your face, and then yes. these guys yes. on the side of it. Yes. Well, <laughs> some of them are all right. <laughs> the, 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 the point being that it doesn't exist. It's an astonishing bogus victimhood c- coupled mm. with conspiracy theory that there are these armies of hugely influential leftist media figures who are skewing the debate and uh, ignoring the interests of ordinary working people and eschewing British values at every turn. And that is why Gary Lineker is such a significant... He's literally the only one they can think of and the only one they can find. He says something completely... Yesterday's Daily Mail, or the day before, it, it, it had alongside each other, it had a story about how everybody in the Tory party is criticising the Rwanda policy. Every single person, except those that are bound by collective cabinet responsibility. And even some of them are kind of hinting at it. And then on the next page, it was six and seven, Linica was on the front page for criticising the Rwanda policy. And, and these, these are the moments where you think the madness has completely taken hold now. You, you're, you're down with Gary Lineker for criticising the Rwanda policy. Oh, what do you think of the Rwanda oh, I think it's shit. Well, the big story was that he'd been mean about Grant Shapps, and it was just like, if that's a crime, then lock us all out. And he hadn't, he hadn't even been that mean. He'd just pointed out two things. Number one, that Grant Shapps has been known by at least three other names in, in, the, um, in, in the commercial world while he made money uh, flogging get-rich-quick schemes on the internet under, under false names. That is a matter of fact. And the other thing he pointed out, which literally nobody possessed of a, a single brain cell could dispute, is that Jonathan Gullis is very stupid. <laughs> your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Well, um, we'd love to get on this question, so thank you first for coming along or watching from afar. Um, without you, well, James will be fine, but the, uh, the rest of us, <laughs> we'll just be ranting at home to our families. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I think we pretty much covered everything one could possibly wonder about British politics, but if there are questions, um, there's a man with a microphone. There is a microphone. Is it on? Um, Is the microphone on? Is the microphone on? We'd like to get through as much as possible. I'm going to give this guy a go because he's got a Christmas jumper which has got the top, uh, Christmas top ten from 1980. 
1980 old. Here we go. Okay. Um, you talked about the vibes that we need to bring um, with Labour and the idea that hope is something that we need to look forward to. My question is, what can we learn from the experience of Obama and post-Obama? has kind of answered it. You, you've got to come out of the traps really, really quickly. I, I, I mean, I think that with Obama, you, I, I have a sense that he thought, I'm going to get around to that soon. And then he never did. Um, and I think that, as, as Alex has explained, Starmer needs to come out of the traps yeah. very, very fast and, and, and do a lot. That would be one lesson to, to learn from the Obama experience. Well, looking at... Um I'm just looking at it's obviously, you know, Biden now, and the, I mean, you know, vibes are everything. Because if you actually look at what people think about the state of the US economy versus what the numbers say about the US economy, and I know that's not exactly, you know, the same thing, you know, the numbers alone can't tell you if some people are struggling. Um, but there's a vast gulf. And Biden was someone that just came in and went, I won't be crazy like that guy. Yeah. And he did that. He has not been crazy like that guy, and yet there's, people are kind of like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't like how things are going. Maybe we'll let that guy back again. <laughs> Maybe he's learned his lesson. Um, so, you know, I do. I, the thing is, there's no foolproof way to sort of get through, you know, to get that new sort of hegemony and keep those guys out. So, well, what I so you don't want to overpromise because I feel maybe perhaps Obama, he said hope and change, and there wasn't enough of it. Yeah. But you also want to kind of really get stuff done. And in America, the problem is that Biden, of course, is being thwarted again and again by, um, you know, problems in Congress and, you know... Well. And I think Obama oh, lost the... Yeah, Obama, Obama lost the Senate in halfway through so his first term. you basically get about, like, two years, yeah, you know. Yeah. Whereas with, uh, with First Past the Post, God bless it, you know, if you win a big majority, you can do a lot. And so... That, that's, that encourages me more, and I think it really matters. What I wouldn't want is like a, just a very narrow win, which would mean that he just couldn't deliver yeah. that sort of change. Yeah, you've got to give the impression of agency. You've got to give the impression that you can change things. I think that is ultimately Biden's problem. For a start, people always, you know, the, 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 unfortunately, the narrative is, well, he's very old and he might die soon, okay? He's done some great things, you know, don't get me wrong, only this week he's been, he's announced the, his intention to ban lead water pipes in America, which is a massive thing because lead water pipes are really, really bad. You know, they, they, they cut IQ by <laughs> an insane number of points. That explains a lot. <laughs> Jonathan Gullis' house. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> but, you know, Obama, as you say, was, ham you know, was hampered by the way the, the system works in the US and the opposition and, and, and uh, from the... It, it's... Uh, you, you've got to be making the running and have people believe that you are capable of changing things. And in that sense, Starmer has got off to a good start because we have seen how quickly he has been able to turn around the reputation and electability of the Labour Party. So that's promising. Sure. Uh, we have another question? Yeah, uh, we're trying to be less centrist, so we'll go over to the extreme wing. Here you go. <laughs> He's his um, <laughs> this is a continuation of the theme. Oh. Um, that's 
I, I literally can't see anything. Okay, there. <laughs> there. Is, uh, is Donald Trump the elephant in the room? How he might he impact? <laughs> oh. I'm not 100% of that, sure about how the dates go inside. Mm. Mm. Right, because that, that, I mean, that is a big problem because the effect that the effect that Donald Trump will have on world events, I mean, Republicans are already trying to throw uh, Ukraine under the bus. Trump definitely would. He will, you know, where, where he would stand on, like, you know, climate change treaties and things like that. So that's a whole load of stuff that, quite apart from the, I'd imagine, uh, chilly relationship between Starmer and Trump personally. <laughs> There would be a load of problems that Britain would then have to deal with and would have lose an ally on many, on many points. I still think Trump won't win. Um, but, you know, I've been, right I was, I've been wrong once and right once, so this is the tiebreaker. Um, it's got to create a great feeling of insecurity in Europe if he, if, he, if he wins and if he pulls out of NATO you know, as he's always threatening to do. And if he basically says the US is no longer guaranteeing your security in Europe, uh, that is going to create an absolute, you know, spasm of fear uh, because, of course, of Putin and what he might choose to do. So, yeah, that will that will be, I think, the first thing that he will probably, the first concrete thing that he will have to deal with. What does What does a NATO without the US look like? How can it be? And, and it, this is an, you know, this is an, an advantage in a way that that Astama will have over Sunak because he, I think, will be open to some sort of European force. I won't say army because the word army scares people. Yeah. But you know, some some sort of. Um, some sort of force which which will uh, which we could be a part of and work with, which will not necessarily well, you know, it can't be the EU because we we won't be in the EU at that time, but will give a feeling of security to Europeans. So that may well be his first challenge. You, you, yes, I think you're right. There, I, I mean, two things. The, I think the Serbian leader this week has essentially said, all we've got to do is hang on until the American presidential election. So these particularly mm -hmm. pungent authoritarians across. Europe see Trump as, as being the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the dream ticket that, that is going to give them the legitimacy to, to hang on to power, not just across Europe, also in parts of the Middle East as well. And, and on the force thing, I never understood that. It was a Farage thing, wasn't it? We're going to have a European army and everyone had a fit of the vapours and clutched their pearls. And you always wanted to sort of grab them by the ears and say, the armies that you need to be afraid of are not the armies that you're in. <laughs> History, history lesson for you. <laughs> I mean, I would agree with that. I would also say, I would agree with you, I don't think Trump will be elected. Really? Um, I don't know why this is such a controversial issue. It's interesting. His campaign hasn't even no. begun yet, and I think his popularity within his party massively skews notions of his popularity outside it. Um, so... Um, but like, uh, as I've said, I think Biden won't run. I think someone else will run. I think they'll sucker them into Trump and then replace Biden with someone 
much uh, 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 sort of more dynamic. <laughs> I didn't want to say the that. The ages in this room, man. I do, but but uh, I also think. But I also think there is there is no reason in 2023 that Europe should constantly be looking to the United States for moral leadership and protection. I mean, what, you know. Our big big boy pants on, okay. and and if there's if there's one thing that might push the UK actually back into the bosom of Europe a lot quicker than most people think, it might be a Trump presidency. Oh, that's a real kind of like uh, yeah. yeah monkey's paw shit. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> rejoin the European Union. Yeah. Like, oh no. <laughs> Okay, we'll try and be quick with the answers. Um, is there anyone else? We've got, time for, we've got time for two more. And it's all been blokes so far, so here's somebody who's not a bloke. Okay. Hello. Um, I'm the sort of weirdo that often phones into radio stations. <laughs> I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm usually here banging on about the state of education and uh, the suffering of children in our country, the fact that they're cold, they haven't got enough to eat, a lot of them. Do you think Labour gets how serious the situation is? Because the education system is collapsing around our ears. And are they going to get spendy soon enough to fix it before all the teachers leave? Sure. I don't be too much Team Phillipson about this, but I think she's somebody who does get it. And it's partly, it's, you know, it's partly her background, her personality, concerns. I think that's the right person to be doing this. But like you said, there is a, it's a huge question of resources. Um, but I, I, I'm comforted by the idea that somebody that actually cares about their sector, as opposed to the kind of musical chairs that we've had over yeah. recent years, where it's like Gavin Williamson. Sir Gavin Williamson. <laughs> You know, obviously couldn't, couldn't give a shit if, if children lived or died, essentially. Um, and so I feel like it's the right person that will be coming into it. Whether they've got the resources is an open question. But, but that's the point, isn't it? Everything is falling apart. There's all those competing things. But I also think there is, there is value to a country that doesn't get its head down, that, that something happens and you think, well, it's, it's improving. You know, that is a big thing to know that, you know, the, the light at the, at the end of the tunnel is not a flamethrower, which, which has been the case with the Tory party all the time. You think, oh, it can't get worse than this, surely. And then Johnson happens, and then you think, well, it can't get worse. And then trust happens. Um, and so I, I think... You know, the, there's not some divorced reality of a group over there that rebuilds the country. A group over there with proper leadership has the opportunity to inspire us to rebuild the country. And that's what's lacking at the moment. There is no sense that we are in this together. But I'd add one thing to that, which, which I think addresses directly part of your question, um, and that is that we're living through an era of extraordinary poverty denial. Um, there, are, there are people who genuinely don't believe. They cannot grasp the concept of running out of money before you've run out of month. And you don't have to be. Uh, you can be a billionaire and understand what it is like to have three days left 
of the month and one tin of beans in the cupboard and no money for the electricity meter. And people like, uh, most obviously, I suppose, Rainer and Streeting obviously understand that. Starmer understands that. And, and that has to be the starting point for the kind of change that you're talking about. The thing that, many things shocked me, but one of the things that shocked me most this year was the juxtaposition of poverty denial. People in public life who would profess absolute disbelief at the idea that, of, of what was called hygiene poverty, the idea that people were running out of soap or running out of shampoo. Mm. And so what you do if you're a certain type of columnist or broadcaster is you, you Google soap and you find a bar of soap for sale for 50p and you say, well, how can anybody not have 50p to spend on a bar of soap? It's absolute bollocks and it's all nonsense and they're all lying and swinging their lead and they're probably spending it on special brew and flat screen television. <laughs> and then, and so poverty doesn't exist. Everybody can afford everything. They just need to make better lifestyle choices. And then they announced that they were going to abolish the VAT breaks on private school fees. And, and suddenly poverty was real. <laughs> so, so, suddenly, you know, these... You don't. Um, these people need help. They need. They need. They, and I'm one of them. We need support. We need. We need money for the VA one. Thank you. <laughs> Suddenly, so money free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. And you hear it. And you watch it. It's a straight face. You need money for soap. Fuck off. You need money for school fees. Christ on a bike. How much? Where do I start? It's unbelievable. But James, um, some of them will have to be educated in state schools. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think about that for a moment. I, I, yeah. I, I, After what the Tories have done to them. Yes. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. Do, yeah. do you think they, they made a film about Dunkirk when there's a story like this <laughs> that has not been told? <laughs> um, we've got one more question. Um, one more question. One more question for the man who has his arm up. For such a long time, it might fall off. Here we go. What are you getting Ian Dunk for Christmas? <laughs> A deadline, actually, we're working on something together, so I'm just going to give him um, a load of work. <laughs> and that's, that will teach him to leave the podcast. <laughs> I think he's here. Is he here? Yes. Okay, yeah, so... He's probably left after the first time. He's already read Atlas Shrugged, but, you know, he hasn't read the film. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I'll get, I'll get him that. And maybe some action figures. Fine <laughs> land action figures. <laughs> some cooking classes wouldn't go amiss. <laughs> I still see abortions posted on his Instagram occasionally. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just a, a very poetic uh, note to end on. Um, thank you to the Comedy Store for hosting. It was very exciting um, being here. Uh, thanks also to our listeners and Patreon backers. And because of you, uh, the team keeps growing. So thank you to that team. Adam, Alex, Andrew, Anne-Marie, Chris, Eliza, Jacob, Jade, Jess, Jim, Kieran, Liam, Martin, Mike, Robin, and Simon. I imagine all just the children of a, of a, of a big thing. Jacob Reese Moggs. Jacob Reese Moggs. Obviously, they have normal, normal names. Um, and also, thank you to our fabulous panel, Alex.
James O'Brien. And our host, Dorian Linsky. Notice, Miss Scott Blushes, everyone.